0: Erlon, I will never forget it.
1: Ear Hustle, stories about life on the inside, told by those who live it.
0: Find Ear Hustle wherever you get your podcasts.
2: From WABE in Atlanta, welcome to this Tuesday edition of Closer Look. I'm Rose Scott. Now, coming up in just a moment, looking back and ahead... How is the pandemic affecting the region's transit systems?
1: Local bus service in this region maintained 44 to 50 percent of its ridership throughout the pandemic. Yes, we saw rail drop about 60 to 64 percent of its ridership. But there are a lot of people, first responders and other people who still had to go to work.
2: That conversation with Chris Thomasson executive director of the Atlanta Regional Transit Link Authority, is coming up. And also, we'll take a look at some of these measures just introduced into the state legislature regarding voting. And also, how the promise of COVID-19 vaccinations for those in senior communities is about health and the ability to socialize with one another. But first, this. 19 cases of one of the new COVID-19 variants now has been detected in Georgia, All of them right here in the metro Atlanta area. What's still not clear is if this variant causes more severe disease. But experts worry it could lead to more infections and reverse some recent progress. For example, here in Georgia, there's been a decline in newly confirmed cases and hospitalizations have been declining since mid-January. But in total, 752,448 cases have been confirmed in Georgia and 50,323 have been hospitalized, and of those, 8,400 were considered ICU admissions. Still now, the state's coronavirus-related deaths, well, that remains a little high. The rolling average of COVID-19 fatalities has consistently averaged more than 100 a day for the last two weeks. So, that brings our numbers to 12,613 Georgians who have died due to the virus. Now, Governor Brian Kemp says many health care providers are being forced to, quote, pause distribution of the COVID-19 vaccine. A spokesman for the governor's office cited a lack of adequate vaccines shipped to the state. Georgia's weekly allotment of vaccines is about 146,000. Officials say they do not expect that number to increase in the short term. According to the state's new vaccine dashboard, at the time of this broadcast, you're looking at about 954,000 vaccines have been administered in Georgia. Now, we've been working to try to get uh, Dr. Kathleen Toomey on the program. Uh, She has not been able to join us, but hopefully she will because a lot of you have questions that you would like answered and we would like to get her on. So we'll keep trying. Now, coming up just a moment, a conversation about how the rollout of the vaccines is impacting senior living communities. So I'll talk to Patricia Will. She's the founder and CEO of Belmont Village Senior Living. This is Closer Look. And closer look continues now here on 90.1 WABE. This is Atlanta's Choice Friend PR. As always, I'm Rose Scott. Georgia Governor Brian Kemp announced last week more than 400,000 seniors here in Georgia have been vaccinated so far for COVID 19. And the governor has always maintained that vaccinating those over the age of 65 years and older is his top priority, along with first responders. But there have been some challenges, including a limited supply of the doses. Now, the Biden administration is pledging 100 million vaccine shots in 100 days. Ambitious and challenging, considering that so far it's estimated at least 26.5 million Americans have received one or both doses. Now, my next guest is someone who knows the, who knows the impact that this can have more than anyone else I can imagine. But she is Patricia Will. She's the founder and CEO of Beltmont Village. Uh, senior living it's a network of communities including right here in georgia miss will thank you for taking the time i really appreciate it thank you for having me uh, let's begin here i just want to know how how other communities doing i know this past year has been so difficult not just for the belmont community but so many of these senior living communities uh can you put any words on how this has been for for those for the folks there
3: Well, the one thing I can say is that despite all of the changes and all of the difficulties and all of the protocols, our seniors are really remarkably resilient. Uh, They have been through the wars, even some that have been through prior pandemics, and they've demonstrated to us that there's always a ray of light at the end of the tunnel. Mm -hmm. For them, it is the vaccine, and that's why we're so excited uh, that they've been able to be vaccinated.
2: And how many senior living communities are part of the entire Belmont Village Network?
3: We have 31 communities across the country, including two in Atlanta. Mm -hmm. And uh, of those, 30 um, will have completed their first vaccine clinic today.
2: Wow. Uh, When you think back to when you all had to obviously change Uh, protocols for people visiting, people leaving, and you look back then and then to now, how much has changed or you still have some precautions in place? Oh, we still have plenty of precautions in place. Uh, The first thing we had to do is
3: uh, restrict visitors and change the manner in which people could visit, Mm. Uh, maintaining safe social distancing, everybody masking uh, to the extent that there was COVID positivity inside a building restricting visitation altogether. At times, just like with the seasonal flu, seniors were on quarantine. Um, Life changed dramatically for our staff as well. Uh, We had to master the art of testing very quickly and continuously test both residents and staff to be sure that we can isolate positive COVID cases. Now, Uh, Go ahead. Through it all, um, we have had to become very creative. I think we were creative before, but this has really put us to the test. And uh, also uh, advanced the use of technology in our communities so that families could continue to celebrate weddings and birthdays. My dad lives in one of our community and had his 90th birthday party in a giant Zoom room. <laughs> um, prior to COVID-19, he didn't know what FaceTime was. So I think that uh, we've
2: adapted. Wow. Are you currently allowing visits from families or is it still? Uh,
3: Depending on where you are in the country, yes, we are able to allow visits. But the visits are restrained. Um, Social distances mean six feet apart. Very often behind plexiglass uh, outdoors uh, recommended. However, in certain climates, we can't always achieve that. Mm-hmm.
2: Let me ask you this, because we're going to get to the vaccines in just a moment. But I'm also curious: Did you have to suspend new new move-ins or folks wanting to come and visit to see the grounds? Because I imagine if you weren't, if you had to limit family visits, you also had to limit folks sure. just coming to so- check it out.
3: Very first thing we did as we uh, introduced testing in our communities back in March and restricted visitation was, um, for a period of time, uh, restrict move-ins altogether. Hmm. Uh, That's a very hard thing to do. Mm -hmm. Um, It kind of goes against the grain. I've been uh, doing this since the founding of the company in 1997, and the idea that A family is in need and wants to move in and can't is a little bit um, hard, Mm -hmm. but we did it for a period of time in order to be sure that we mastered what we needed to do inside with the residents that we have already. Um, Today, uh, a new move-in will be tested prior to moving in, quarantined, and then tested a second time, um, unless and until we have enough residents that have obtained the vaccine.
2: So, and I want to I obviously respect a lot of people's privacy, but uh, Mrs., Ms. Will, do you know if you've had any either residents or, you know, faculty, staff that have contracted the virus at all?
3: Absolutely. Um, and um, I, I think that anyone um, in our shoes and in society in general uh, would be uh, deceitful mm-hmm. uh, if they didn't. Uh, admit known up to the fact that this very contagious disease spread through people who are largely asymptomatic uh, didn't invade their house. So yes, um, and we find uh, the disease within us by constant testing. Mm -hmm. So to the extent that we do that, we are likely to find the disease, which is a good thing because then we can take all the precautions to isolate the individual, or quarantine them at home.
2: Now, throughout the network, you all are, are are you partnering with local health departments and having them come in to do the testing, or are you doing this through a private provider?
3: Uh, the um, testing that we do is all done through private providers, and it is done in a variety of ways to assure that we can frequently test all employees since they're moving around mm-hmm. more than our seniors are, mm-hmm. and as well seniors who may have come in contact with something, somebody with COVID-19, or who have symptoms. But we partner with private labs across the country, launched that last March, expanded it during the summer, and have excellent providers that can give us great service overnight.
2: The voice here is Patricia Will. She's the founder and CEO of Belmont Village Senior Living, and we're talking about the impact of the COVID nineteen on the senior living communities throughout the network. And also, now we're going to talk about the vaccines. And Miss Will, I imagine as the vaccines became available, you all jumped at the opportunity to make sure you could get your facilities. How did that happen? Was there a long progr- progress process rather, and have all your communities now been able to at least offer the vaccines to your residents?
3: The process was actually fairly straightforward. In the beginning of November, the CDC opened a portal for senior living communities like ours to enter their data, uh, basic census data, how many people work there, how many people live there. Um, Once the uh, two vaccines that are out currently, Pfizer and Moderna, received uh, FDA approval, uh, we had already been assigned to a national pharmacy chain to perform the vaccine clinics within our communities. Uh, Walgreens was assigned to us, Mm. they have done a terrific job and the clinics happen in a series of three. The first clinic, everyone who's consented to take the vaccine gets the vaccine The second clinic, we pick up additional people who may have missed the first, and the second dose for the first people. And the third clinic, uh, which comes up at intervals of roughly 21 to 28 days, is for those who got their first vaccine on the second clinic. I know that sounds like a tongue twister, Mm. but in fact, it's a very logical progression. Where we are today is that every community in the country uh, will have gotten the first vaccine clinic, and we've now had second vaccine clinics in about six of our communities. Mm.
2: Are you able to determine the percentage of the residents in these senior living communities that said, hey, yeah, I'm on for it. Let's kick it up. Let me get this vaccine. And did you or in a percentage that said, no, I want to wait or just did not want to do it? Was it? a Well,
3: I can tell you that the seniors are not for waiting. Uh, <laughs> uh, and we've had 97 uh, percent of our seniors take the vaccine. Uh, And the few that haven't have a medical reason Mm -hmm. um, that they had to wait. We're we're shooting for 100 percent, and we think uh, that's what's going to happen. Um, Equally important are our team members, because Mm -hmm. our team members have really, through this pandemic, done an extraordinary job uh, in the communities with a variety of changes and have to keep themselves and their families safe. We're happy to say that across the country, over 75% of our team members have said yes to the vaccine. And again, we're shooting for the moon. We want to see that number rise to 100%, uh, if at all possible.
2: Let's talk about your team members uh, for a moment before I let you go. How important they've been throughout all of this and, and staying with your communities, with the seniors living in these communities, how they've been in in, in all of this.
3: Well, the term essential workers, I think, really, really uh, describes them well, but it leaves out the tremendous heart with which they've approached their jobs. We have a saying in our company that our caregivers are PALS. It's an acronym for Personal Assistance Liaison. But if ever during this period of restricted visits and in apartment quarantines and protocols of masks. If ever our frontline workers were pals, it's through this pandemic. Mm. Uh, we all ought to stand up and salute them.
2: You couldn't have made it without them, huh? No. You know, the distribution of this vaccine, Miss Will, has been called a, a ray of hope for Americans throughout this pandemic, and especially when we hear so many accounts of our seniors who feel isolated, um, who've not been able to hug their grandchildren. You know, I, I miss my aunts and my great uncles, and I have not even seen any of them. Um, but what will this say through your lens in terms of th- these seniors being able to get vaccinated and maybe for them just allow them to, you know, have some sense of, of normalcy, whatever that will be uh, one day?
3: Um, it has been described over and over again as the greatest gift um, that they could imagine, this gift of immunity, The idea um, that after a period of time, they may be able to unmask and see smiles, Um, the sense of touch um, that's so important, and fraternizing. Um, When you are 89 or 90 years old, and you are at a table in the dining room uh, reading a novel because your friend is across the room, Mm. that's a tough thing. Yeah. Um, they've been doing it. They've been doing it uh, with grace, uh, but the gift of immunity is the light at the end of the tunnel.
2: And how have you been doing through all of this? And you are also a caregiver. You mentioned your father, um, who's ninety. How have you personally been doing through all of this? I'm curious. Uh, to be honest with you, I look
3: to the seniors for resilience. Yeah. Um, and I look at what they've experienced and their continued buoyancy despite everything. And it kind of keeps me up. Um, It's been a grind. There's no other way to describe it. But we will persevere. We're getting there now. And um, I'm excited that we're able to be a part of solutions, Mm -hmm. not just playing defense against the problem.
2: Absolutely. And uh, just to be clear, you all still, are you still waiting for the second dose of some of those vaccines? Or you all aren't scheduled to get, okay.
3: We, we have second doses coming um, across the country at various points in time mm-hmm. within the next week or two in Atlanta, and we can't
2: wait. All right. Patricia Will, the founder and CEO of Belmont Village Senior Living, a network of communities. Thank you so much for taking the time. I really appreciate it. Best of luck to you, all of your senior residents, and your wonderful team members. Thank you. Thank you for having me, Rose. Take care now. And closer look continues now here on ninety point one W A B E Atlanta's choice for NPR. I'm Rose Scott. In Georgia, there's some confusions about there's some confusion when it comes to those who were previously convicted of a crime and whether or not they're eligible eligible to register and vote. Now, according to the Georgia Secretary of State's website, quote: "Your felony sentence is considered completed even if you have outstanding monetary obligations other than fines, such as unpaid restitution, fees, costs, or surcharges." However, There is a restriction that involves defining moral turpitude. We're going to get to that in just a moment. Well, my next guest, Democrat and House Representative Josh McLaurin, is sponsoring two measures that are both related to voting. And we're going to talk more about that. He's a Democrat, represents District 5, Sandy Springs, and he joins the program right now. Representative McLaurin, thank you for taking the time.
4: Hi, Rose. Uh, Thank you. I'm really happy to be on your program today.
2: I appreciate it. Before we get to your bills, Representative, let's begin with the flurry of measures introduced yesterday by Republican senators. I imagine you have thoughts on them Um, that we can't get to all of them. But first, just overall, your thoughts. Is it a surprise to you that there have been this these bills have been introduced because they are they're a lot?
4: I agree that there are a lot uh, and not in a good way. I wish I were surprised. Uh, I think what we are all looking at, what we know we're looking at, there's no real ambiguity about it, is an attempt by a Republican majority at the state legislature level uh, to change the rules on an election uh, system that they are starting to uh, lose elections in. They just lost a few statewide races, Joe Biden, John Ossoff, Raphael Warnock, and now they're changing the rules uh, and they want to limit people's access to the ballot so that that doesn't happen anymore.
2: Let's get to a few of them, because first, no automatic registration when someone gets their their driver's license. That's been around for a while now. Uh, an end to no excuse absentee voting, banning drop boxes, and then an absentee ballot application ID process. Uh, take your pick. Right. Each and week. all of those
4: measures. Exactly. I mean, any and all of these measures are calculated to reduce the number of people who are registered to vote and who actually exercise that right. Um, You know, automatic voter registration in the state when you get your driver's license is something that both parties should be able to agree about. I mean, it's an administrative convenience for people who are engaging with uh, levers of government to uh, have access to the ballot at the same time they get their their driver's license. Same thing with the drop boxes. Mm -hmm. They're secure. I I haven't heard any stories, about people breaking into them or compromising them in any way. I mean, we trust election officials to count ballots at polling, uh, you know, counting locations. And we, we should be able to trust them to handle the, the infrastructure that we've been using with success securely so far. I, I can't think of a policy justification for getting rid of a drop box, except that you want to make it more inconvenient. For people to return an absentee ballot. It's really that simple.
2: There's also Senate Bill 70, which I believe prohibits new Georgia residents from voting in runoffs. Might this be, could it be that they want, and I know you don't speak for the Republicans, but might there be any chance for any type of compromise on any of these measures?
4: I I can't imagine that for some of these extreme proposals that there's going to be any spirit of compromise. Mm -hmm. And again, I I hate to sound like a broken record, but that comes from (laughs) the the reasons for these bills. These are not bills that are attempting to fix what you might think of as a policy problem. Right. Mm -hmm. Uh, A problem is like a, a pothole. Right. You know, there's a saying that a pothole is not Democratic or Republican. It just needs to be fixed. Uh, but the problem I put in quotes that we're looking at here is uniquely a Republican quote problem, because it's just that uh, the party's starting to lose more elections and, and they don't like it and they want to to limit access to voting. And I will say one thing that's ironic is, you know, there are a lot of Republican voters who have been using the absentee ballot system successfully and mm-hmm. efficiently for the last few years. And it was a Republican majority that put the no excuse absentee ballot place in uh, into effect in the first um Uh, decade of the millennium. So I I think they've got to be careful. Obviously, their goal is to reduce uh, participation overall, but they could be hitting some of their own voters with this. And I don't think that Republican voters are appreciative of of these efforts.
2: And just for a programming note, we are working to get state lawmakers on who have introduced these measures. We're working to get them on the program as well. Uh, Representative, let's talk about the measures that you're supporting now. I may not be the smartest cookie. I don't know. But I research many legal abstracts and journals, and I'm trying to find a definition regarding moral turpitude. And even by the government's own language, the term I'm quoting here, the term involving moral turpitude is difficult to define with precision. Can you define it?
4: I can. Uh, That phrase was used in the post-Civil War era in many states to refer to crimes that were defined uh, as crimes that were more likely for black people to have committed. And again, this is not, I am in no way saying that there's one race that's more likely to commit crimes than other races. That is the opposite of the point I'm making. Mm-hmm. There were crimes that were created. There were there was criminal liability that was created, expanded after the Civil War, because it was all a reaction to the 15th Amendment to the US Constitution, which gave black people the right to vote after uh, slavery was ended as a legal matter. And again, there are exceptions to that 13th Amendment. You know, if you um, are convicted of a crime, the the 13th Amendment protection goes away. But the idea was that the, the states after the Civil War were trying to reimpose control over black people and deny them the ability to participate in our democratic institutions. It's not just a story in Georgia, it's a story in New mm-hmm. York, it's a story in many other states.
2: What does the Georgia law regarding someone previously incarcerated and the ability to register and vote, but as it relates to this moral turpitude clause, they cannot? Is that...
4: Well, so, right, the the, the disenfranchisement provision in the Georgia Constitution and the georgia code right it's both in constitution and statute and that's why i've proposed two measures to get rid of it in both places Mm -hmm. um what it does is it is it takes away voting rights from anybody who's currently serving a sentence for a felony now technically it's any felony involving moral turpitude but as we just discussed that phrase moral turpitude is not well defined and it may not really mean anything in particular it kind of means whatever the original creators of that law wanted it to mean which again was to disenfranchise based on racism So Georgia courts currently interpret it to basically encompass all felonies. So what that means is while you're still currently serving a sentence on or for a felony, you are unable to vote. But that doesn't just mean people in prison. It also means people out on probation and Mm -hmm. parole who still have part of their sentence left to complete. Now, it's great that the secretary of state's office says they're not going to disenfranchise people who only have fines and fees outstanding, meaning maybe you served your six or seven years, whatever it is you were given. And, and Georgia has some of the longest probation links in the country. So, you've, you know, you got people out on uh, probation who are living in their communities, who are working, they're paying taxes, they're raising, you know, taking care of families, raising kids, uh, but they're unable to vote because they're still subject to sentence. But at least the secretary of State's saying if those people have completed the time of their sentence, any outstanding fines and fees are not going to disenfranchise them. But in my mind, that's not far enough. But does that
2: include being on probation? Let's get some clarity here. Because you can have served your sentence and paid your fines and restitution, but you can be on probation for 10 years. Well, that's what I mean
4: by sentence. If you are on probation, you are subject to correctional control. I mean, what maybe some folks don't realize is, you know you might have a completely clean record except for your underlying offense you might have never had your probation revoked but if you even get arrested uh, during your period of time on probation that could be a violation probably is a violation of your probation conditions even if it's not within your control just the fact of the arrest and a court can revoke your probation and put you back uh, in incarceration so that whole time that you're on probation you don't really have Fourth Amendment rights. You can't stop the police from searching and seizing you. Mm-hmm. Uh, and and the same thing is true with the voting rights. If you're still serving that sentence, even if it's on probation out in the community, you don't have those voting rights.
2: So House Bill 28 deals with that. Let's talk about House Bill 101, which relates to a lot of circumstances circumstances regarding voters being purged from the roll. Is that correct?
4: Well, actually, the, the two provisions are fairly identical. Mm-hmm. So one is House, it's actually House Resolution 28 okay. and House Bill 101. And not to get too far into the technical stuff of the legislature, but the resolution is defined that way because it's an amendment to the Constitution. Constitution. Gotcha. So voters would have to approve that. What the House Resolution does is it resolves, and the Senate would have to pass it too, uh, to put this question on the ballot. Should people who have been uh, convicted of felonies still be allowed to vote, and I don't know how they would word the ballot question, but the idea would be to restore those voting rights uh, to all citizens, uh, regardless of criminal conviction. Now, the resolution would amend the Constitution. The reason that you have it broken out in a House bill that's separate is because, like I said, when this uh, provision was first introduced, the the folks who wanted it wanted it bad, so they put it in two places. They put mm-hmm. it in both the Constitution and in our statutes, our ordinary Georgia laws.
2: Well, let me ask you this. Right now, as it stands, how likely is it that either one of these could, first of all, get even get a chance to get a vote here?
4: Right. And or even get a hearing. Yeah. Um, Very unlikely. And I acknowledge that openly just because of the politics of it. You've Mm -hmm. got, again, a Republican majority in charge that has shown that, let alone whether they want to expand voting rights, they have taken a whole bunch of affirmative steps to restrict voting rights in the last uh, few weeks and uh, ever since the election. So uh, do I think that in this moment, the Republican majority is going to entertain an idea that would allow over 200,000 Georgians, Mm -hmm. Georgian citizens, right? Uh, Many of whom pay taxes, Uh, their their right to vote again. I don't think that the majority would do that. And it's very unfortunate, but we want a hearing. We want the opportunity for people whose voices have been taken away by these racist provisions Mm -hmm. to be able to speak truth to power, to go inside, the Capitol building, assuming it's safe to do so with COVID and to testify and talk about what it means to, you know, ride public transportation, to pay taxes, to hold down a job, to, to have a family. And yet, despite all of these things, you know, not to be in our communities fully, but not be able to vote on the, on the basic conditions of, of their lives.
2: You want to bring human stories into the, the state Capitol so that lawmakers can hear directly from these folks?
4: Because they're citizens. I mean, mm-hmm. that, at the end of the day, there's there's both philosophical and human reasons for this this change. Mm-hmm. The, the human reasons are they're people just like us. I understand that people have made mistakes. But as I've said with these provisions before, we disagree with other voters all the time. We think that people on the other side of the aisle a lot of times have bad judgment. That's how a lot of voters think as well. Mm-hmm. I know what I'm talking about, but those voters don't. There's nothing about a felony conviction that takes away somebody's citizenship. Or, or necessarily means that they can't exercise basic human judgment. I think part of the struggle with criminal justice reform in general is humanizing people, recognizing that, yes, people make mistakes, and some of them are very bad, but it doesn't make them less of a human being. And when we talk about voting rights, that's one of those things that is so core to the idea of being a human being, being a citizen. And the other thing I like to point out about this is our prisons are in awful condition right now. You have people getting COVID, dying of COVID. There are record numbers of riots, homicides, suicides over the last year in multiple state facilities. We have one facility whose numbers on on these points are as bad as other states' entire systems, right? So it's a a reflection of what happens when elected officials don't feel accountable to a certain group of people. They feel like they don't have to pay attention because they can't vote. So what happens? They let those facilities fall into disarray and and in some cases it violates basic human rights because nobody's paying attention so we need to restore those folks voting rights if only so they can protect themselves from basic human rights violations i mean it's awful stuff and and this is just the beginning of that conversation to give them a voice uh in all of that
2: we'll stay tuned georgia house representative josh McLaurin, thank you so much for taking the time i really appreciate it thank you
4: thank you rose i appreciate it so much
2: As we continue here on Closer Look, 90.1 WAB, Atlanta's Choice NPR, I'm Rose Scott. You know, public transit systems across the country, they reported historically low ridership as a result of the pandemic, and we know they were struggling. Now, here in Georgia, locally, the Atlanta Regional Transit Link Authority, also known as the ATL, is still wanting to connect the 13 county region's transit systems. And there was a 2020 annual report and audit that included an assessment of last year, as well as goals and visions for this year. It was discussed in a conversation I just had with the ATL's Executive Director, Chris Tomlinson. Chris, thanks for taking the time. I really appreciate it.
1: Thank you for having us.
2: Who knew? Because usually every year you come on, we talk about the goals and projects and initiatives. Uh, Who knew that we would have a pandemic? What do you make of all this? uh, What happened in 2020?
1: Yeah, I'm glad 2020 is behind me. Sometimes I think January, though, is a remnant, and maybe the year starts February 1. But um, it, it's been a, a tough year for everybody, and it's been a tough year for transit, as you pointed out. But, you know, I'm one that likes to find the, the silver lining in the clouds, and this pandemic has taught us some lessons that I think will help improve things long term.
2: You know, I believe the last time we spoke was in November of 2019, and you talked about some of the initiatives and visions for the ATL. Of course, this was before the pandemic. I want to refresh your memory. So much of what we need
1: to do with our transit system and all this discussion of expansion is do a better job of connecting people and jobs and to communities. Um, And what can we do to make it so that if you're from a zero-car household, How can you access and use transit to consistently get somewhere, be it for work or education, et cetera? And there's a lot of room for improvement.
2: So, Chris, you talked about how do you connect people, jobs, communities, all that, and then comes a pandemic. Because of the pandemic, is your focus a little bit, has it been changed now for initiatives for this year, just in general? Not at all. I mean, the
1: pandemic did two things. In the short term, it made us revisit our... Um, cleaning protocols and strategies for the for the buses and the air and it's brought forth some innovative technology that I think will serve us well after the pandemic is uh, behind us. Everything from daily cleaning regimens to uh, now we're looking at these air ionizers which literally um, leverages the air to help um, neutralize the virus. So I think those are just good things going forward but what it does for connecting people jobs and communities it just redoubled our focus. Uh, a lot of people don't realize this. You're right about those national stats, mm-hmm. but local bus service in this region maintained 44 to 50% of its ridership throughout the pandemic. Yes, we saw rail drop, uh about 60 to 64% of its ridership, but there are a lot of people, first responders and other people who still had to go to work and they relied on that system. So if anything, Uh, If people through all the peaks of this uh, pandemic continue to ride, we need to redouble our efforts to make it easier for them to access this and safer.
2: Let's back up a little bit for our listeners who may not be familiar with the ATL. I gave a very basic description coming into the program. You all were created through the Georgia legislature back in 2018. But the idea when we say connecting these 13 counties, it's, it's a lot more than just connecting via bus, correct?
1: That's correct. We are multimodal in our viewpoint. Um, and then uh, we're really mode agnostic. Um, the ATL thinks that we need more investment in our transit infrastructure, but all transportation is important. You're familiar, roads that i also responsible for the State Road and Towway Authority, and that's the Peach Pass lanes. Mm-hmm. So now we're looking at how do we combine these modes to make each mode work better? And one of the things we're planning is uh, I-285 top end bus rapid transit uh, that will use these express lanes and it's a regional project, seven cities crossing three counties and all about how can we give a transit option to uh, leverage these toll lanes and without paying the toll, mind you, we don't charge public transit. Mm-hmm. So that's one of the things we're, we're doing. Um, The second thing i point out, which gets back to what I said last time I was on your show, we've launched a regional fair policy project. The first thing we need to do, Rose, is try to make it easier to use what we've got. So can you imagine a time if uh, one set of fairs worked on every single provider and you didn't have to think or have a different product? We're hoping to get there and we're working with all of our partners in this region to try to make that a reality right now.
2: Let's also just reestablish for our listeners who may not be aware, because obviously when we think of public transportation, we the first thing that comes to mind in this area, of course, is MARTA. But there are other local, more regional public transit systems, too, that are involved in this, right?
1: Absolutely. There's over nine what we call fixed route operators in this area. So there's MARTA. There's the State's Express Service. Mm-hmm. You have Cobb County uh, Transit, which is now called Cobb Link. You have Gwinnett Community Transit. Uh, there's a service called CPACS, Center for um, Pan Asian Services, which is based on the Buford Highway corridor, mm-hmm. Henry County, um, Douglas uh, County, uh, which, by the way, uh, launched the first new transit service in this region in the last 15 years. Um, and that's just to name a few. There's Cherokee. There's others. Mm-hmm.
2: Now, I also want to just for our listeners because we know that there was some bus service, and I know you're not speaking for Marta, but there was some bus service, particular routes that were suspended because of the pandemic. And recently in DeKalb County, I think it's Dorville and Dunwoody are asking that that service return. Do you know if that's going to happen? Because I understand in Dunwoody, there is no bus service. Is that correct?
1: I'm not sure if there's none at all, but but you're correct. Um, During the pandemic, and I do, I'm a non-voting member on the MARTA board, Mm -hmm. so I'm all about MARTA too. Um, But you're correct. Uh, I would say approximately 60% of the routes uh, were uh, temporarily suspended during the pandemic. That was a tough decision. The strategy was to focus in those high frequency corridors, put more buses so we can socially distance people. Um, But throughout, and I don't think MARTA's got enough credit for this, throughout, uh, they've maintained a process to listen to both riders, local leaders, and to reevaluate how and when they could add back some service. And I believe in the cab specifically, uh, they're going through an analysis right now.
2: So what is a chance that bus service could yeah. be return before the summer or definitely before the end of the year? If you're talking about connecting communities where people can get to work, this is a prime example of an issue, obviously. Because oh,
1: clearly. I mean, nobody was happy about cutting service. There is a process. I encourage people to contact either MARTA board representative or MARTA so that they make sure that those routes are being specifically uh, looked at. And that's been happening, and there have been some incremental um, ads. And as we get a better picture of the budget, that's one of the things that I know that Jeff and his team are focused on, because we want and need more service. Mm
2: -hmm. Chris, let me ask you this, because I mentioned as part of uh, President Biden's next package next plan will include money for those public transit systems that were hit the hardest within the ATL. Do you all as a collective, as the ATL, would you all also receive money to disperse to these systems? Great question. Uh, The answer is potentially we could.
1: What happened in the first CARES Act funding is uh, money was allocated to this region based on ridership and performance stats. And the ATL's role, uh, because all federal money funnels through us, was to allocate that money out. New money is about to come in, um, about $33 million into this region. And based on uh, the latest requirements from the Federal Transit Administration, that money will be allocated to MARTA. The others luckily received 75% or more of uh, what they um spent in 2018. That was the yardstick that was listed. The exception is MARTA because their system is so large. So mm-hmm. this next tranche is going straight to them and hopefully to help them get back to the route setter in service and uh, their review of adding back service.
2: How important is it for these transit systems to get back to at least if not 100% of what their operating service somewhere near that before you all can continue on with your connectivity issues and and initiatives? Because I imagine if those systems are still struggling, it's going to be a challenge for you all to implement some of these new projects. I think it's
1: important, but um, everyone is taking a very strategic approach to how they add back. I'll give you an example of what I mean. A lot of service was cut because the ridership wasn't there. Mm -hmm. Now as MARTA and other services, including express at the state level look to add back, we're looking at, where should those routes be reactivated? And then secondly, the frequency. For example, one thing the state did was we reduced our service dramatically. We're about uh, 50% of the service that we had before, but we maintained at least one morning and evening trip on each of the routes. Slightly different approach than MARTA took um, because we at least wanted there to be an option in those corridors. Now we're looking to see, um, whether we should increase the frequency, or if we had any ridership. And so um, it, we're going to build back, And I think, in a more strategic fashion than uh, the service was reduced.
2: Chris, let's talk about a word that I think you and I have discussed, and goodness, whenever I have these conversations, but it's, it's equity and access uh-huh. when we talk about transit and mobility services here. And even in looking at your report, when you all say about 60% of residents cannot access any grocery store or convenience store within 30 minutes by transit. That's not new. When you see this, and you've seen this for a long time, what is the issue here? Why does this continue to be a problem? This is 2021, and we're still talking about just equity and access to to these basic quality of life issues that people have to deal with here.
1: It's a real problem, and um, I think the issue is uh, finding the funding, the ongoing operational funding. To start service and maintain it. Um, we all know, and some of our federal funding is designed to allow for up to a three year ramp up period, mm-hmm. but you have to have the revenue there to maintain those operations. But I don't think that's only part of it, Rose. I think the second thing is we have to work much harder in this region to make the service more attractive. Um, one of the things that I've encountered, and it's one of my pet peeves, is that. Even those, many of those that are supportive of of transit still feel like they're doing somebody a favor, the transit dependent. And when you take that approach, you may think you need more service, but you don't think as much about the amenities. Does this shelter provide coverage from the sun and from rain so that people want to use the service? So one of the things I think will go towards equity, and this may sound counterintuitive, but I'm very excited about the work we're going to do on Georgia 400 BRT. Mm -hmm. And this is a highly affluent area, not one you would think about, I would mention when I'm talking about equity. But I believe when we go through the design process for what those stations look like, what what we think it should be like to fit in with Avalon, and we bring those standards to the projects that we're doing in Atlanta and South Metro, it'll be a more attractive service for people that will help with the ridership. And and that's one of the things that we need to do for uh, everyone.
2: Well, why not start a project like that already in South Metro? Why do you have to start it there in that area? Well,
0: are you saying we, you have to prove it to these folks first
2: before you help the other folks? I mean, come on, Chris. Not not at all, not at all. In fact, the first BRT
1: bus rapid transit will be the Summerhill project. Mm-hmm. But what I'm saying is, um, the design elements that we may think. that will work in Summerhill, we need to start thinking, will this work in every part of the region and design something that is attractive and functional for everyone? And I think when we start thinking about the region, we start thinking about these issues more so than in areas where we're like, well, we just have to connect to a grocery store. Um, we'll, We'll just put a stop on this sidewalk and not think about the amenities. And I'm just... I just believe when we have everybody involved in that process, especially when people start thinking, wow, I got to make this attractive to those who have other options, then we'll build a better system that will attract um, all riders.
2: Define then for our listening audience, when you say attractive, what does that mean?
1: It means that uh, people want to have a place to wait for, be it the train or a bus, that's going to provide them some shielding from the elements. Mm -hmm. Um, If I'm going out to uh, wait on a bus, uh, be a bus rapid transit, and I have to think especially hard about what the weather is and do I want to stand uh, in the shelter, you might lose me to another option. Um, That is true whether you're transit dependent or not. So I think as important as where the service is, is how it functions, how it treats its customers. We have to put the customers first and get beyond, oh, I'm glad we just added service. And then we turn around and we're surprised sometimes when ridership isn't isn't high. Got to make it attractive for everyone.
2: But again, can you understand someone saying, well, just go ahead and do that in those areas where you know car dependence is very low? which if you want to talk about Southwest Atlanta or you know, West End or whatever you mm-hmm. want to call it, why not go ahead and start putting that infrastructure over there because you know there's the need?
1: I, I, and I think we are. I mean, um, but what I encourage people to do is um, Summerhill BRT, MARTA held many public meetings. Um, they had mixed turnout depending on the meeting and a lot of these were virtual. Mm -hmm. Um, I think you had some decent participation from those in the Georgia state university community, but everyone needs to, um, step up and say what they want and what they, uh, need to be comfortable using it. And the public participation isn't as high as you would think. I'm, I'm encouraging everyone to say, tell us what you want to see, because if, if, we don't hear it, it might not make it in.
2: And as you know, Chris, you can turn to the right now with virtual learning where so many households are already having connectivity issues. So if there are these online or virtual town hall meetings, then maybe folks may not be connecting. Maybe folks don't even know that their input is needed. Do you have to rely then on other partners to help get the word out? Yeah, we're in a pandemic, but folks could mask up and go out into the communities. You also have your churches. I realize that they're also in a virtual settings. You have your city council members who represent these neighborhoods, these communities. If you're saying that people aren't telling you what they want, but there's also a barrier for them to even give you that message, that's not fair to say that, well, we didn't hear from this community. You know what I'm saying?
1: No, that's that's true, and uh, I'm actually proud to say that the last set of public uh, open houses, we developed a whole virtual site, but we also had in-person meetings. Um, but even before the pandemic, my, my point is, those virtual meetings haven't been well attended. Prior to the pandemic, we did try to start thinking out of the box. They've moved some of these, um, and this is really gonna tell us prior to the pandemic, but to local malls and, mm-hmm. um, or the Peace Tree, uh Center food court, but we actually tell the volunteers, reach out, stop people as they're walking, see if you can get them engaged. And and you're right. It takes multiple modes, multiple channels. And, and we're doing that. And we do reach out to um, uh, neighborhood partners. But I think that's something that we can do more of.
2: Mm-hmm. We should do more. Absolutely, I think a lot of folks will and listen we've had this conversation so many times before, Chris, so I don't want you to feel like I'm beating you up, but you know the importance No, of, not at all yeah, you know when folks say, well, we want to invite the community, we want to get them to the table, but then you know sometimes it's in the messaging it's you know are you reaching the people? Let me ask you this for twenty twenty one and we're still in a pandemic, so that hasn't gone away. What will be the top priority for the ATL? Is it going to be continue to look at how you can connect all these regions? Is there anything else that you all need to address, that you want to address, rather? But keep in mind, we're still in this pandemic.
1: Yeah, there's there's a number of things we'll be looking at. I, I mentioned one, the regional fare policy. Mm-hmm. It's not as easy to go across these different systems. People don't even know the different names. Um, so we want to see if we can find a way to either simplify fare structures um, or come up with things that will make it easier for riders. I'll give you a perfect example. This is something uh, Jeff Parker and I have been spending a lot of time talking about. One is, one is what we call mobile ticketing, using your cell phone. But I'm going to come back to that because that's a technology-based one. Mm-hmm. But the second is the concept of fair capping. We have a number of, of um, customers on any given system that ride with a high frequency, but they may not have the money in one fell swoop to buy a monthly pass, which can range anywhere from $85. I think the highest in our region is $180. Um, but they're paying day by day. We're looking at ways to upgrade the systems that once you hit the equivalent of that pass, it stops charging you. So you never had to pay it all up front. Mm -hmm. that's something that I think will make it a little bit easier. We're looking at transfers. Uh, Currently there are free transfers between say Marta and express. um, but there isn't a universal free transfer among the different, um, the different providers. Um, so we're trying to see, does that work from both a financial as well as technology? Uh, so that fair policy is one of our key initiatives. I mentioned, um, the mobile ticketing or using your cell phone. Mm-hmm. Um, we're working on what's called ATL rides. It's going to be a, um, hopefully both a payment as well as trip planning. You put in where you are, where you want to go and it'll plan a, a route across multiple operators. If need be, eventually we want to add in Uber and Lyft. Mm-hmm. And, um, and so we're just trying to find ways to even fill those pockets where there isn't a, a fixed bus or train stop.
2: Is that similar to what they use in, in Washington, D.C.? Because they have so many different color lines, green, red, whatever, and it depends on your destination and that's how you charge. Is that similar? Is that what you're saying? Well, in the
1: Fair Policy Project, we'll take a look at distance-based charging. Mm-hmm. I, a lot of people find that confusing, um, but we've had other people that say it's not equitable to charge 250 to go two stops. So we're going to look at that. Um, But no, this is uh, similar to what uh, you would find this in Boston. You'd find this in the Bay Area where Bay Area has over 20 different uh, providers. They're using an app called Transit App, Hmm. and it'll just tell you the most efficient route across providers. We're trying to do the same thing, but then maybe also be able to make
2: a payment through it as well. And Chris, let me ask you this because this is another topic that depending on whom you ask, you get a different answer. Could this region use more light rail or heavy rail or a combination of both or none, no rail, uh, no more rail?
1: I I think that um, we should look at all these different technologies. Um, one of my pet peeves is that when we decide on the technology first and then we try to see if it fits. Um, I. I, I know that obviously Gwinnett had looked at uh, heavy rail connection. Um, Clayton County is looking at what we call a uh, commuter rail. Mm-hmm. And I think there's a place for all those. Um, I, I do think we need to put a, a lot of focus on bus rapid transit. Uh, everyone hears bus and they sort of shut down. Mm-hmm. But imagine if we gave a dedicated lane to that bus so we could run it like a train. We could build it faster and cheaper. Rose, a lot of people don't realize that now, it costs anywhere from 300 million to 400 million dollars per mile to build heavy rail. Mm-hmm. Uh, light rail could still be around 50 to 75 million. But I think you will see, if not heavy rail, I think you will see light rail coming into this uh, region. Maybe it's Clifton Corridor. Um, um, maybe it's something in Clayton County. Maybe it's something to Gwinnett. Um, Not sure which, but I think you will see it.
2: Chris Thomason, Executive Director of the Atlanta Regional Transit Link Authority, also known as the ATL. As always, we appreciate you taking the time and giving our listeners an update on what's taking place in terms of transit and mobility in this area. I really appreciate it, Chris.
1: really appreciate you for having me, and I hope you have a great 2021.
2: It's got to be better than
1: 2020. (laughs) Yes, it has
2: to. And that's it for this extended edition of Closer Look, which is produced by Grace Walker and LaShawn Hudson. Our engineer is Kevin Ranker. If you missed any of today's program, it's online at wabe.org slash Closer Look. And of course, Closer Look weeknights at 8 p.m. As well as our podcast. Subscribe to Closer Look wherever you like. Stay tuned to 90.1 WABE, Atlanta's choice for NPR. I'm Rose Scott.